the next stage is how does how do we connect not just to the climate but to the natural world around us how can we practice therapy in a way that is practice as if nature matters where we practice the stories that we listen to the recommendations that we might we might make how we listen to people's language there are 101 different ways that we can reconnect our nature connectedness um, and I think some of that starts with revisioning psychology into a broader, you know, not just a biopsychosocial model, but a, one that really properly embraces all that eco-psychologies have been, you know, working on for at least 40 years. Welcome to the Wild Minds podcast for people interested in health, nature-based therapy and learning. We explore cutting-edge approaches that help us improve our relationship with ourselves, others and the natural world. My name is Marina Robb. I'm an author, entrepreneur, forest school, outdoor learning and nature-based trainer and consultant and pioneer in developing green programs for the health service in the UK. to be back after six weeks. It's going to be an exciting season of episodes with some great guests. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified every week. You're listening to episode nine, psychiatry, our climate crisis and mental health. My guest today on the Wild Minds podcast is Dr. Alan Kellas. Among many other accolades, Alan has been a lecturer in psychiatry, a community NHS consultant psychiatrist. He's helped set up the Green Cams faculty group within the Royal College of Psychiatry and was an active part of the core advisory team developing the college's response to the climate and nature crisis, whose position statement was released in May 2021. And I'm going to provide you with a link in the show notes. What's really stayed with me since this interview, which took place in spring, was that Alan described our climate crisis as humans self-harming on such a great scale. And that has given me hours of food for thought, which I will talk about next week. In this episode, though, we're also going to be talking about what is psychiatry and how nature supports our psychology. Hi, Alan, and welcome to Wild Minds. I'm very, very excited to have you on this show. And um, as you know, we start with a little bit of gratitude. Would you like to start today with a little bit of gratitude? Yes, well, Marina, um, big thanks for inviting me on. I feel honoured to uh, be part of this project of yours. Um, and I'm very grateful for yeah your inspiration, your teaching over the years. Um, I'm grateful to be able to share gratitude. It's always a good good thing to do, isn't it? We were talking earlier about the delights of spring. We're we've sort of come through winter, and the multitude of buds and growth and new springtime feelings are all around us. Wow. So I'm grateful to you, and I'm grateful to spring. Ah, oh, thank you so much. Um, well, I feel. Because I've got you here on the podcast, I actually feel immense gratitude to psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and all the different people actually that have a role within our free, mostly NHS system, um, because I know how, how much help they give to so many people, including myself, over my life, whether that's GPs or not. So, yeah, I'm really grateful that we have a system, however flawed it might be, and maybe we'll get to that later on, but but I'm still immensely grateful for the fact that I can ring up a doctor and get an appointment or I can, um, you know, actually say, look, I'm really troubled and I need some help. And um, I know people like yourself will will do their best. 
And um, so, yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for that and for the people out there that are that are doing their best for others. <laughs> yeah. So, Alan, we've known each other for, gosh, I don't know how many years now, but I've I was always taken by the fact that you were willing to talk to me, actually, as, as somebody who was practicing kind of green programs and taking groups out, I felt that you were always willing to show up. And I, and particularly as this idea of being a psychiatrist, because I was sort of brought up with this notion that in a way, psychiatry was quite exclusive in some ways. And I just wondered, I know that you're, you're, well, you're a psychiatrist, but I'd love you to, and many more things, by the way, but I, I'd love you to just share with listeners, what what is being a psychiatrist or what is psychiatry? Would you mind starting with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I should say, uh, Marina, that I'm sort of retired and pretty much finished being a psychiatrist. So <laughs> you're getting me partly with the benefit of sort of hindsight. It's not. Um, but you're right that I... Um, well, that's a big question, isn't it? What's psychiatry? I mean, I suppose within the context, too, of what you were talking about before of how it is in this country, because I think it's it's different in other countries. There's something amazing, I think, about the creation of um, the National Health Service and the role of the mental health um, campuses was a big part of the debate around, you know, um, bringing together general practice, hospital trusts and mental health care as it, as it was then and as it had evolved, partly with the influence of institutional care. I guess that's, you know, um, certainly one of the origins of psychiatry. But um, how, it, how it's struck me, if I can talk a little bit about my own experience, I guess I, I was interested in medicine. Uh, I, I found that the um, so that psychiatry sits within medicine, which is one of the things that distinguishes it a bit from therapies, psychology, which don't necessarily have um, such a strong grounding in in the body. I mean, people like me who've trained as psychiatrists have trained as doctors first, so we've often had experiences of, you know, anatomy, physiology, dissection, biochemistry, all of the those natural sciences have worked in acute medicine. You can't really be a psychiatrist unless you've been a junior doctor. And then, I mean, in my case, it was a very wiggly route, and I'd done quite a lot of things before I came back into psychiatry. But for most people, they come into it having having been doctors, firstly. I guess that influences the way you think. Um, and one way into that is that we're particularly interested in the brain um, and the brain from the point of view of having seen it um, and the physicality of what the human body does, um, the the embedding of that amazing structure in the chemistry and biology of the human body, um, its influence from the circulatory system, for instance, all of those things I would say that psychiatrists are sort of medically minded psycho psychologists and therapists. Um, and broadly speaking, then the training <clears throat> um, gives you a chance. It's often still rooted in general adult acute psychiatric care. So often, you know, the groundings for most psychiatrists is being in acute acute medicine, dealing with people with self-harm, presenting to casualties in crisis. Um, but pretty soon then there's a sort of a divergence of different areas. So there aren't really general psychiatrists. I mean, I would say that what I've ended up doing, which sounds very specialist, is actually probably the most generalist. And I'll explain that because my speciality is I after I did my general training was I specialized in helping people with learning disabilities so um, that, that had a particular interest in developmental mental health problems in other words problems that didn't just start in adulthood but might have their origins in the early years of someone's life um, there might have been an adversity a head injury or something like that early in life but the idea of my specialty is that 
there are quite a lot of difficulties that people have that don't just come on in adulthood. And indeed, to understand someone in adulthood, it's very important to get a good sense of what they were like as a kid, as they were growing up, what was their development like physically, psychologically, socially, their family, relational um, experiences. So um, in that sense, learning disability psychiatry is a little bit like child psychiatry in that, you know, you're interested in development, you're dealing with something that um, has a history and you can't understand the present without looking at the past as it were uh, and the other thing that I think you know my specialties shared in common with child psychiatry is that you might well be dealing with an individual and that's your that's the focus of you know who you're trying to help but in order to help that person you might very well need to help the people around them I mean parents carers um paid unpaid carers you're you're you have to be interested in the systems around someone in order to, because sometimes the problems are in the systems rather than in the person themselves, um, all the way from stigma and how people are treated in society. Um, uh, so, but then just to briefly mention some other areas of psychiatry, I mean, there are psychotherapists, so there are people particularly interested in sort of medical psychotherapy, often dealing with people with complex um, issues that need um, specialist psychological interventions, um, everything from sort of therapeutic communities to um, specialist psychological trauma, um, personality, relational um, therapies. Um, and, and then there's old age psychiatry, you know, people with dementia, um, people of end of life, you know, people present with different conditions and issues at different times in life um and, and then there's sort of addictions um liaison work which is people working in general hospitals um and then there's the whole field of forensic psychiatry of people who might be running into trouble with the law um and might have broken the law or be at risk of it um who might need an interface between um I mean, they might have done awful things, but there might be psychological and other reasons for it, and they may be treatable. So to give you an example, over the course of my career as a sort of learning disability psychiatrist, there were times when I had to work in locked inpatient units where people were under um, the order of the home office. So, you know, uh, they were subject to the courts as well as to the health service. Um, all the way through to community care, doing home visits um, and working um, with people in a whole variety of settings from clinic bases, uh, often in communities um, rather than uh, clinics. I mean, the characteristic of things, the needs of people with learning disabilities is that they don't fit into clinics. Um, or boxes very easily. You have to individualise your approach, and that includes where you might see them, how you might see them, how you might communicate, how you might establish a relationship. Um, and, and that's yeah, that's what really interested me. So that that's what I've been a sort of specialist psychiatrist to help the the brains, the psyches, and the social environments of people with complex needs. That's that's the area that I've mainly worked in. Ever felt unsure about writing risk-benefit assessments for outdoor sessions? You're not alone. It's a crucial legal requirement that many overlook, leaving them uncertain and unsure about risk. But imagine having the confidence and competence to navigate this seamlessly. That's where I come in. So head to theoutdoorteacher.com slash risk to sign up now and master risk benefit assessments with ease. And lastly, if you're based in the UK, why not immerse yourself in nature with one of my transformative trainings in the beautiful landscapes of Sussex? Discover more about our in-person courses at circleofliferediscovery.com. It's a lot 
um, broader and wider than I actually understood. But I'm particularly interested in the fact that whilst you have all that training, all that experience, um, you've often said to me, so, you know, if we're looking at these wider systems, maybe the history of a person or like you said, their parents or their perhaps their schooling or all these different influences, um, where then, if at all, does this notion that, um, that the wider system of the earth, the wider in the natural world, um, does that get a look in in traditional, let's say, psychiatry or mental health per se? Because I think this is obviously what we're really, I know we're both interested in this um, as well. And I'm wondering for you, you know, in one way we're saying, hey, look, you know, we, we are interested in these systems. But where does, let's say, the natural system play or does it, as far as you're aware, in in these, this understanding of what it is to be human or the, 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 what it is to be well, even? Yeah, it's a really big and important question. And I suppose at one level, it's often there, but it's not spoken about. It's silent. Um, it doesn't feature explicitly in much training. Um, there isn't that much attention to it. Um, uh, but yet, if you ask people in practice who are trying to help individuals, let alone people like myself who um, see themselves partly and have to look after themselves as patient as well as practitioner, you know, if you've had your own experiences of, um, of a mental health event, um, then most people will say, well, nature is just really important to me. And if you ask, well, what, have there been special times, special experiences, even special places, special relationships in the past that have helped you? What keeps you well? Very, very, very often people will refer to the natural world. Um, Mm. But, um, I'm still shocked and, yeah, frustrated that, and I suppose over the last few years, towards the end of my career and since I I gave myself more time to train insofar as I could, a bit in permaculture ideas, a bit in eco-psychology, in various nature-based practices, I came to see that, um, yeah, it Nate, you can't be a biologically-minded I mean, the idea of, you know, of a medic being interested in the psyche but not interested in the biology of the mind, the, the nature of the brain, how, how the brain evolves, the relation between the sensory world and the arousal systems in the body, um, uh, or be interested in, from a therapeutic point of view in how we develop not just in relation to our caregivers, our mothers, our fathers, um, but also in what was the role of the natural world as we were growing up in our play. How did children relate to to nature in all of its many forms, from water to animals to plants? So an attachment-based theory of the mind, which is fairly pervasive, um, doesn't have to be extended that much before people start seeing that attachment and connectedness doesn't just relate to other humans. It relates to our human, non-human connections. And we can't understand, I don't think, the development of a human being or the human psyche without looking at nature and development and play and, I mean, things that you know more about than than I do. But um, So nature is clearly important in development nature is absolutely embedded in the brain and in everything to do with the brain and that influence on the mind um mm. but like you say also any systemic view you don't need to ask a kid that much about well who's at home and what's who's important in your family and it might well be there's mum or dad if if they're there and grandparents but very often there's a dog or a cat or a um or a place, um, mm. if not in their immediate life, certainly in their family life. Um, so culturally and 
I mean, maybe then the other thing to say is that um, I suppose psychiatry is becoming more aware of its sort of cultural envelope, as it were, you, you know, and that what we have developed that sort of works in in this country and this culture works to some extent um, for some people. But when you're trying to help people from other cultures, from other backgrounds, um, you really have to take each person as an individual and their history completely individually and their history of place and relationship with the natural world is, is very individual. You're quite often fragmented and maybe split, you know, as more people have mixed heritages of different sorts and have mm. different places of origin, don't they, that might be important for them. I mean, I am really interested in why it is the case that um, without any blame, because I think it's so easy to kind of try and point the finger. I'm absolutely not trying to do that. Here we are, you know, in the in the 2020s and we know that we have multiple crises, including climate crisis and a crisis in mental health. Um, and um, and. They seem to me connected, and and I don't think it's like I, as as an educator, I can hear a, a voice in my head going, you know, you can't expect teachers to do everything. Like, and if I've got the same voice going on, you can't expect psychiatrists listen to all the training you've just described and the the capacity of that. Um, you know, you can't expect them to also, you know, have an understanding of the importance of the senses or that. So, but somewhere I feel like we're reaching a kind of time and place that that is some kind of I mean I, I'm speaking really just off the off the cuff here but a time and place where things are merging in some way there's a sort of convergence of understandings from different disciplines and we can't sort of just ignore that like I know you're one of these people that I would say it seems to be like a kind of a, a bridge person that can go hang on I'm a psychiatrist but I also really feel and understand the value of and the power of nature so so if if that's some in some way correct what what can we what can we do i suppose to to support people who are psychiatrists and patients and clients and you know what can we do do you think to close to close the gap a little bit if that's if that's what we're trying to do Big questions um, I've got today, haven't I? You didn't think you were coming yeah, for just, just small yeah, yeah. questions. Oh. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I'm maybe the worst person to ask because to me it just seems so obvious and so outrageous that it's not included more. I mean, to give you just a few examples, with all that's been spoken about the climate and, you know, the threats to our being and our future, let alone the future generations from carbon and emissions um, and the language around um, temperature rise, how quickly that becomes reduced to, in discussions around sustainability that don't mention nature and biodiversity, I, I just find totally shocking, Marina. And I can't understand why people see the climate and and that goes all the way to political level to the structures of you know the cop conferences um it goes to to live discussions that i've been part of and and you you were invited to be part of with the college of psychiatrists around what should a college like the royal college of psychiatrists say about the climate and to get at least the ecological crisis there and to see that maybe mental health might be under threat, you know, because of future adverse events and the traumas that can be created by, you know, uh, flooding and drought and all of that aspect. But the the question that lies in the heart of all of that is what's going on with our relationship with the natural world? And how is it that we manage to commit such such self-harm on such a big scale that we create these environments that are that threaten us um how how is it that we 
can't see the the interdependence that we have w- with the natural world. So then, to me, as a psychiatrist in trying to understand behaviour that's risky, you try to deal with the risk, but you also try to deal with you know the underlying causes. And I don't think it's a surprise that our psychologists and our psychologies are really asking the question, and I see it as a progression from where does the body fit into the mind? Many therapies are moving to a much more bodied, embodied practice. But then the next stage is how does how do we connect not just to the climate, but to the natural world around us? Um, how can we practice therapy in a way that um, is practiced as if nature matters? Um, both where we where we practice the stories that we listen to, the recommendations that we might we might make, how we listen to people's language. There are a hundred and one different ways that we can reconnect our nature connectedness, um, and I think some of that starts with revisioning psychology into a broader you know, not just a biopsychosocial model, but a one that really properly embraces all that eco-psychologies have been, you know, working on for at least 40 years, isn't it? It's not Absolutely. it's not new this. Well, it's certainly not new. It's certainly not new for wider cult from wider cultures. I mean, within our Western paradigm, it's it feels like there's a little bit more of a kind of realizing realization, should I say, of that. But um yeah, you're right. I think uh, you know, in Western world we yeah, forty years is probably a good a good a good time frame. Well, well, I suppose I was talking a bit about theory and ideas and some of the social movements that are going on, like you know the climate protest and and the climate justice protest. Because I think you know the coming together of how can marginalised people and populations and all of the um, all of the reparation work around looking at our history of what we've done. Um, to and with and in other cultures is time for a reckoning. Um, But beyond that, then I I suppose the other bit that I think is beginning to change, and I could say a little bit more about how I see that, is that um, practical ways that working with animals or working in natural environments or having conversations with people outside of clinic spaces um, of... Um, the value of walking and talking, of growing, um, of being in woodlands, of the power of water, um, let alone, um, you, you know, I'm aware that one of our shared interests is how education and health, mental health come together. You know, as a, I've been a child psychiatrist, worked quite a lot with kids with learning disabilities, complex needs, and it's it's obvious there that when you go into special schools who might have made adaptations to their curriculum, but for for those kids who often come to the attention of psychiatrists, the role of forest school adapted outdoor learning opportunities, clearly really, really important to the point that it's so obviously the wrong way round to say, well, let's try to look at kids who aren't doing well in the classrooms, um, you sort of ask the question, well, who said that the classroom was the best environment for, (laughs) you know, for these kids? And surely we should have a much more sensitive understanding of the best environments for learning to take place. And for many kids, that's, you know, that's not in classrooms. And to label them, as sometimes I've been in the business of trying to you know, write recommendations for an education, health, social care plan. And you hear very loud that, you know, kids do badly in certain settings socially or or in the built environment. It, it just seems the wrong way around, doesn't it, that we're trying to fit in health and education just within the built environment. Absolutely. And I, I mean, that's the main reason why I, you know, offer and try and support practitioners to take their practice outdoors it's not that I think it's the only place of course not or even the only thing to do to kind of let's inverted comma do nature-based practice but 
but it clearly is a place and it's not just for children it's also increasingly as I see it for the adults you know for the for the NHS staff that are accompanying the groups or the teachers that are accompanying the groups because actually um as you say when we're in our bodies or our bodies which you know are in a way the bigger holding of our brains <laughs> are, are are really often really benefiting by the movement at a basic level isn't it well, and all these senses as you as you said but also these other relationships these other relationships that are so important and actually you know for me and we've talked about this uh, before that you know when you're struggling and you've had a a, a really challenging mental health time it can be momentary it can be years often as you said earlier in the podcast these can be issues often from your relationships with other humans let's say not always so for me in my life having other relationships that weren't just um human were really helpful and and I and I often talk about you know every every week I probably mention the notion of being having cabin fever you know I need to get out I need to to, to, to be in a different space and that helps me and so I absolutely think we need to be offering um, opportunities because of course not everyone has access so offering opportunities within hospitals schools um, everyday lives to to be able to get outside what things have kept you well or supported your wellness uh, in your life and has nature played a yeah, part in I'm, that um Yes, it has for sure. And, you know, some of that is because I was lucky that it was an important part of my early family life, I suppose, part of it. My dad wasn't a great speaker, but I knew that um, something happened to him and to us when we went for a walk, when we climbed a mountain. Or So, it, you know, I think I'm lucky that I had some of those early life experiences. But I mean, just picking up on, you know, I've had in, in the course of my career, I've definitely had times when that toxic dialogue of I have to, but I can't, I have to, but I can't, I have to, but I can't, which which basically led to a, a couple of times of burning out and having to stop and recharge. Um, at those times of burnout where I think deep at a deep level, I knew that people I just I'd had it with people and I think that the human psyche has a limit to making sense of human relationships certainly the tech world the human world um organizational life careers all of that it's complicated isn't it just being a human but I found it you know when when I spent time in nature and I think for me it was coming across a practice of finding a sit spot and taking a sort of meditation in, in into the outdoors. That really, really helped. I, I just found an acceptance, a sense of friendship, a sense of wisdom, a sense of calm. Um, I mean, quite bizarre insights. Um, you know, I think that we are magical beings, um, and at I've had experiences that um, have been bordering on psychotic, trans, you know, um, transpersonal experiences of uh, the natural world speaking to me um, and helping me at, at a very deep level. Um, so, yes, I think I think a lot of these that that's what's inspired me to explore how much that might be important for other people. Um, you know, when in doubt, um, try slowing down is a good motto, isn't it? And see whether nature might have a wisdom. I mean, right now, one of the things, Marina, I think we've talked about this is water. I just I've only really recently come to appreciate how wonderful water is, um, <laughs> not only through sort of swimming and immersing, but being near water, being on it. Um, it's just a wonderful presence, isn't it? And, um, you know, there are many 
things that flow from that in in terms of therapeutic possibilities. Yeah, I think, I mean, you said something, you said, look, humans are also magical. And, um, and I'm interested by that, because actually, I think there are models that help us understand that perhaps this idea of magical is, um, you know, beyond our understanding, you know, so there's, there's aspects of us to be human that are beyond our understanding that, yeah, who knows in a hundred years, they may be, they may be, um, people will understand why they're not magical, let's say, but from our perspective in that moment, it does seem extraordinary that we can, um, have an insight. You know, I also think of, uh, I'm going to get, I hope this is right, Newton's apple and then understanding gravity. I mean, that's a classic kind of thing that you don't understand why you understand, but suddenly you understand. And I, I, I do have friends and colleagues who will talk about this wider intelligence that exists, this living intelligence that, you know, the moment you're outdoors, you're not just being influenced by um the human moment you're in, you're being influenced by other things and that's presumably having a biochemical um impact within your systems um that that's having a thing so i like i appreciate that you that you use that word and i can also feel in me which you know this kind of uh western awkwardness of you know did i say magical you know um and is that acceptable and I, and i think so i'm holding that at the same time as this notion of you know, you said bordering on psychosis. And as you know, we've run uh, uh, programs in nature with young people that have had psychotic episodes. And, you know, there, and I've, I had that as a 19 year old. Um, and, you know, my memory of that and was that I, I was not grounded. My, my feeling was that I was not able to be grounded, that I was, I was, I was not able to, um yeah be connected I guess it felt like I was quite vastly disconnected but at the same time having a whole nother experience um so and I remember at that time thinking I wish that there were places that I could go where I could be safe um and explore uh what I was experiencing um in a in a in a container that was more was greater, if you like, than what I was being given um, by that system. And this is 30, 35 years ago now. And and I wonder, I wonder, you know, what you think about that. I mean, mental health services, are are there opportunities to to have spaces where people who are perhaps experienced quite, you know, extreme um mental health challenges in a moment I mean, do they exist as far as you know? And if they don't, could you imagine that? I suppose, you know, in extreme states and where we factor in also risks of harm to self or to or to others, then, um, yeah, that's what acute psychiatry is all about. It's, you know, um, and depending on what the causes might be, um, uh I mean, dealing with an acute crisis, um, those settings, I, I agree with you that I think the natural world is a very important um, partner in helping people regulate their moods in acute states. Um, often humans can easily make it worse if people are left alone in safe places. Um, for, from those people in my career, you know, and having assess people in police stations and recommended that they do have acute care. I know that very often just being in a safe place with loving atten attention can be sufficient. Um, it's important not to jump to medications and um, trying to medicalize something that what's important is to trust the healing processes of a person. And I'm sure that you're right that good inpatient settings and, and there are quite a few that do have access to gardens, safe places, um, and organisations like the NHS Forest and others um, are trying to green um, NHS provisions and bring together the natural world and health settings. I mean, that, then there's the work that needs to incorporate 
how does nature get incorporated as another member of you know the multidisciplinary team um and there are issues around that how how can that work it depends mm. on the professionals really seeing the opportunities that are there and it's difficult work um obviously if there's longer time to work with people to get to know someone properly then you know how to really understand someone's nature connections what's the relation between their presentation their crisis their issues and can nature help them and in what way i think that's a you know that's the work of careful humble um detailed assessment understanding and co-creating maybe this helps you know let's try movement oh. in nature let's try working with breath let's see what water can do some sometimes people are called to you know the presence of a dog can transform someone's um thinking um oh. horses and and the seaside so i i'm the question is how do you embed that sort of knowledge with the current system where often the people who are working in the system are so stressed often so um fixed by certain pathways of care that thinking more laterally about what really matters to an individual can be difficult and that you mm. do need a good buy-in from all members from the top of the organization to the direct care staff to the you know mm. to the various members of the multidisciplinary team if it's in that sort of setting um I, I think there's something about i mean this is a huge subject i completely accept that but i think there's there's something about you again what you said earlier about the problem can be personal it could be my history what, what you know all the stuff that's happening or whoever's history um but it can also be structural and systemic and i and and it, obviously it's a combination of both and i'm wondering nowadays um about as we become more aware of that and maybe um maybe a more um i want to say accept accepting or understanding of the impact of systems and as you said the history of systems and the impact that we can perhaps understand why there might be so many crises around or why somebody may be exhibiting strange behavior or anxiety or you know and I, again thinking about let's say climate anxiety for example in that and I and I always have more to say than I know can be answered is is this idea that we want to find ways of supporting those with complex needs as you've done all your life as well as everyday people going to school and I'm aware that you're involved. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you know is happening with GPs and green prescription, because there's a spectrum here, isn't there? There's me talking about yeah, is, psychotic, yeah. psychosis, yeah. and then there's everyday people absolutely needing this for wellness. And, and yeah, what, what could you just share a little bit about that? Well, I think that idea, just to distinguish those three areas, that there's nature in everyday life for all of us in, in all settings, and then there's the specialist use of, and partnership with nature for particular conditions. And the middle area in what are sometimes described as three circles it is sort of targeted, more targeted health promotion, prevention programmes, maybe for people with particular needs who who are hard to reach otherwise, and, and that's the realm of social prescribing, the idea that, you know, in primary care and in community settings, um, medication might not be the best answer to some of the wider issues that people face. I mean, there's housing and benefits and financial issues, poverty and um, living conditions, which is an important aspect of getting right. This is speaking from a GP's point of view. But then the question about could social connection come about through connecting with community resources and groups, whether through arts and um, heritage type things, cultural activities, faith-based activities, but then within uh, and physical activity. So arts, activity, heritage, 
benefits. Then the final piece is around nature connection. So that's really the realm of green social prescribing. And current state of play is there have been a number of pilot sites across the country to try this thing out. There are social prescribing link workers in pretty much every primary care network in the country, but the the infrastructure to connect those people and people who might need it with nature-based experiences, maybe programs, maybe drop-in experiences, those are still developing. And we're in a culture where, you know, there's not a lot of money around, but the notion that um, nature could help, time in nature, access to nature, activities in nature, learning about growing, taking exercise outdoors, maybe bringing in arts and writing, photography, um, uh, and combining physical activity with being outdoors, you know, those are basically much more mainstream and come under the rubric of green and blue social prescribing, which I think, you know, wasn't widely known about five years ago, is now you know, at a point of being evaluated and rolling out in different ways. Um, So, yes, I think that's a good example of where um, nature in all of its many manifestations um, can help well-being. And there are some people who just with a little bit of nature, two hours a week is the sort of equivalence to achieving a certain amount of physical activity can be transformative for people. Mm. And, um, and and there are initiatives to try to encourage and support and train up GPs, social prescribing link workers, people working in community settings with knowing what's on in your local environment and how might you explore that with individuals and what support to pass it on in a in a trusted way so that people don't suddenly find themselves in an environment that's alien and weird but mm. you know is built on relationships that's the sort of work that's currently going on and there's there's something for me about absolutely that being a very tangible step next step green prescriptions green interventions for a school type things in schools getting more access I can see hospitals making sure there's gardens and you know you know bring and and people being trained if they're psychiatrists if they're psychiatrists or uh, health practitioners family workers being able to add to their belt the possibility of going out outdoors I, I I see that really clearly I think what what I think is harder for me is this more deeper I guess deeper ecology deeper understanding and the word deep seems to kind of link quite nicely to the notion of wild, though I'm still figuring out what that word means. But this idea of actually there's something, there's there's a deeper uh, relationship that, that, that we need to explore within ourselves and within each other and wider systems to understand that there is this to and fro between the natural world and we're part of that. And, and, and yeah, it's not just, again, about taking a resource and making it work for us, you know? No, quite, definitely not. I mean, maybe one, I know that we're running out of time, but this Mm. is, we haven't really talked about death and dying and the natural cycles of things coming to an end and, you know, how to make sense of that for ourselves, how to come to terms with it, how to connect with those deeper parts of ourselves that often we do confront when we realise that our life isn't going to go on forever and that everything has its seasons. So I think, as you say, nature isn't all about health and well-being and it's not all about, you know, helping people come to terms with extraordinary transformative or difficult experiences. But I think there's a really important role that hasn't really been explored in how how and why is nature so important for our culture individually and for our healthcare systems to see what nature how can nature help us face the end of our life and and mm. die in a in a in a better way because i think it's become overly medicalized and and that's maybe another way into the sort of magical deeper bits that we're touching on mm. well that's a a um an interesting place to end um, with considering those roles, but but uh, uh, you know, as you say, this is a 
ongoing inquiry and also the desire to see some significant change in our mental health services um, so that we can more fully support um, ourselves to be yeah more more well more full have more vital lives and and in the end have more vital death I guess so yeah so Alan if people wanted to find out more I'm just thinking of the Royal College of Psychiatry would that be a place they could go to do you think to look up a little bit about this uh, yes there are there's some pages in the Royal College of Psychiatrists the Nature Matters pages um there are other resources maybe we can uh, link people to in, a, in some resource links. Yeah, so um, on, on the podcast we'll, we'll have the show notes, but we'll also have links to some key documents. Yeah. Um, so what can I say? Thank you so much, and I hope you can have some time very soon in nature, perhaps by the sea, as I know that is a place that you love dearly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Marina, and good luck with your wild minds. May may wild minds thrive. Thanks again for speaking to me, Alan. Join me next week as I discuss this link between the climate crisis and self-harm and discuss some developments in the health sector around green interventions and prescriptions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Minds podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to help support this podcast, please subscribe, share and leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help others find the show. To stay updated with the Wild Minds podcast and get all the behind the scenes content, you can visit theoutdoorteacher.com or follow me on Facebook at The Outdoor Teacher UK and LinkedIn Marina Robb. The music was written and performed by Jeff Robb. See you next week, same time, same place. wondered about the guitar music in my podcast surprise it's my husband jeff robb his show the music of trees is hitting the road across england and wales blending tree stories with woodland melodies catch him live in may june and july tickets available at jeffrobb.com slash shows mm-hmm.